Welcome to the fourth installment of the TSRA Clinical Scenario Podcast. My name is Ryan Campagna, and I'm the junior fellow at the University of Michigan. Today, we'll be going through three scenarios based on achalasia. These scenarios are taken in part from the TSRA Clinical Scenarios book and also from Lessons 33 and 34, Management of Benign Esophageal Disorders 2 and 3, from the SDS Surgical Curriculum. I'm joined today by Dr. Rishi Reddy. Dr. Reddy is the Jose Alvarez Research Professor in Thoracic Surgery and Director of the Center for Surgical Innovation. All right. Well, welcome to Dr. Reddy. Thanks, and let's get started. Let's say you see uh, Ms. Jones. She's a 25-year-old woman with a... uh, um, two-year history of difficulty eating, both solids and liquids. Uh, she feels like she's regurgitating uh, at least once a day. Uh, she has lost weight. Uh, she's lost pro- uh, approximately 30 pounds over the last six months and feels that she has difficulty with food uh, on a daily basis. Her primary care doctor uh, has uh, gotten a barium swallow that shows dilated esophagus with a tapering at her GE junction. Great. So I would uh, complete a history and physical, a couple other points on the history, um, any family history of cancer, um, any previous endoscopies, uh, is she up to date on other health surveillance like colonoscopy, et cetera? And then on physical exam, uh, what would we see? So um, she's 25. She doesn't have any other uh, major known medical concerns or history uh, that she's aware of. She's never had a colonoscopy. Uh, she has not had an upper endoscopy either. Um, on physical exam, uh, uh, somewhat unremarkable. Uh, she's age appearing and no apparent distress. Has a BMI of 22. Okay, I would order labs, a CBC, a comprehensive metabolic panel, in addition to the barium swallow because I have a suspicion for achalasia. I think we could proceed with endoscopy and uh, also high resolution manometry. Okay, um, she uh, gets an upper endoscopy, which does show. Uh, a dilated esophagus um, uh, with uh, tightness at the GE junction. Her lab work is otherwise unremarkable, and her manometry shows uh, 100% uh, failed peristalsis, uh, normal tension at the GE junction, but no relaxation. Okay, so in summary, I'd have her back in my office. This sounds like a young woman, 25 years old, who's coming in with a primary diagnosis of achalasia. And so I would talk to her about the disease and the treatment options, which are all include surgical palliation of the lower esophageal sphincter. And that can be accomplished through pneumatic dilation or through surgical myotomy. Um, I would use a multidisciplinary approach and present her case and find out uh, which method would be best for her. Okay, uh, so let's say she chooses to go with a Heller myotomy and uh, a partial fundoplication. Um, please describe for me, uh, how would you approach that or how do you do that surgery? Great, so um, I would do this transabdominally and uh, minimally invasively, so gain appropriate safe access. I would um, complete a, an anterior dissection and esophageal mobilization. Um, and then after entering the crow, I would make sure I identify the anterior vagus nerve. I would sufficiently mobilize that such that I could perform a myotomy on the anterior surface of the esophagus. I would extend it six centimeters above uh, the Z-line and two to three centimeters onto the stomach. And at that time, I would perform an endoscopy. Um, And then if everything looked okay, I would then perform a door fundoplication. Um, In my practice, uh, I just use the endoscope as a rough estimate um, for the fundoplication, although 
and some others still use Ibushi. Uh, that's it. How do you know that you've uh, done enough of a myotomy, or how do you judge that? So I would use uh, both gross anatomic landmarks, looking at the uh, angle of hiss laparoscopically. I'd also look at the squamous columnar junction on endoscopy to make sure that um, I've identified that point, and then again, six above, two to three below. Take me through your normal uh, post-operative care pathway for this patient. So the patient would be kept on PO uh, on post-operative day zero with standard analgesia and antiemetics. On post-operative day one, I get a routine um, esophagram uh, to make sure the, that uh, there's no perforation and contrast can go through without uh, undue tightness of the wrap. Um, if that looks good, I'll give them a couple days of clear liquids, a couple days of full liquids, and then after that, put them on a soft, mushy diet. Okay, let's say um, on your barium swallow on post-operative day one that they notice a, a leak from the myotomy site uh, above the area of the door fund application that's leaking uh, into the abdomen. Uh, the patient is hemodynamically stable. What would your next steps be? Right. Um, even though the patient is uh, stable in the sense of stable perforation, because it's immediately post-operatively, I would elect... Um, to go back and address the issue. And so I would give her fluid resuscitation, put her on broad spectrum antibiotics, um, and then take her to the operating room and uh, identify the perforation itself. If I can see it and it's in the mucosa, I would look specifically uh, right at the GE junction in the Z line. That's most often where it occurs. I could uh, repair it primarily, the mucosa, and um, again, cover it with my uh, Dorfund application. Let's say you're unable to visualize it easily uh, because of your prior door fund application, and, uh, um, but you are able to see where some of the contrast is, or the barium study was tracking, uh, but you don't feel that you can safely take it down. Alternatively, I, I would just try and see if I can ex do something with my myotomy, whether extend it or try and look at it um, to visualize it. Um, again, my preference would be to take it down, but um, if I couldn't access it for some reason, I could just proceed with wide drainage um, antibiotics and um, try and also visualize it through EGD and see if I could see it there. So let's say you do wide drainage. Um, how would you feed the patient? Oh, right. Yeah. So I would, during that operation, put in alternative feeding access if I couldn't uh, visualize it. Um, in this case, I would preferably put in a chagenostomy tube. Um, alternatively, you could do an enteric tube. Great. Yeah, I think both are reasonable options, and um, ideally, one if you discuss with the patient beforehand. Um, but um, I've had patients prefer e either option, either mm -hmm. a, a Dobhoff feeding tube or a jejunostomy feeding tube. Great. So one scenario that um, is in line with some of the thoracic surgery STS curriculum modules that we're trying to address is uh, in epiphrenic diverticulum, and so I wanted to ask you, Dr. Reddy, in your practice. Um, how you would treat those in association with achalasia. Yeah, so I I would think that an epiphrenic diverticulum and achalasia are variants of the same disease process. So there are, um, there are issues with the uh, muscle layers within the esophagus. In an epiphrenic diverticulum, um, you still have a, a whether hypercontractile or a lack of relaxation at the GE junction. And here you have the diverticulum forming um, usually uh, just above the GE junction, but they can actually occur all throughout the length of the esophagus. So it is a slightly dis different disease process than achalasia itself. 
Um, our traditional approach here for epiphrenic diverticulums have been to approach these through the left chest, uh, usually a thoracotomy uh, with complete mobilization of the um, hiatus as well as the esophagus. We would then perform a uh, diverticulectomy, uh, mobilizing the diverticulum itself. We then uh, oversew the muscle over that diverticulum where that's been stapled. We then perform a uh, long myotomy on the contralateral side to where that diverticulum was, trying to extend that myotomy all the way up to the aortic arch, uh, which is as high as you can visualize the esophagus from that left side. We take that myotomy down again approximately two centimeters onto the stomach itself. Um, here, it's, uh, we do a partial fund application, and historically we've done a modified Belzy uh, fund application as an alternative to a, a door, which uh, I've normally done through a laparoscopic route. Um, but we'll do a modified Belzy fund application um, to reduce the incidence of reflux and then close the cura through the left chest. And that has been our traditional approach. Uh, many people have described now doing a laparoscopic approach uh, especially if you have a solitary distal epiphrenic diverticulum. I think some of the challenges with that are making sure that you get the myotomy up high enough because again you want to complete your myotomy for as long a portion of the esophagus as possible. Um, there have definitely been case reports of people having a, a partial myotomy that maybe you would normally do for traditional achalasia but you then develop, a person will develop uh, or new diverticula above that area of the myotomy. Um, and so that's one of the limitations with the laparoscopic approach. Great. And then finally on this, um, we do in our curricula have a section on poem. And so in this day and age, uh, on board scenarios, my thoughts are, you know, we'll have to be accountable for the information that's there in the literature about poem and an understanding of it. But what are your thoughts for the boards and in, in your practice? So I, I think our institution has had growing in, uh, experience with poem. Um, I personally have not performed these yet myself, but one of my partners does along with our gastroenterologists. Um, I think you have to be aware of the indications for it. Uh, it is still not widely covered by insurance, at least in the United States. And so that has been a challenge for patients to get that option. Um, I do mention it to patients when I see them for achalasia uh, as an alternative uh, to the Heller myotomy uh, and door fund application, which I do perform laparoscopically. Um, so I, I think it's growing as an uh, option for patients. So I think you have to understand, one, is your institution offer it? Uh, two, uh, understand that not all people will have it covered by insurance. Um, and then understand what those complications or benefits are from that. We have definitely utilized poems now for redo myotomies uh, for patients who may have had prior surgery um, but still have uh, an esophageal shape that may be amenable uh, to receiving a poem. Great. So we'll get started with scenario number two. So let's take another scenario, um, and, and this is one that in our practice we see fairly frequently. So you have uh, Mrs. Smith is a 45-year-old woman with a three-year history of dysphagia. She has also had in the, history, uh, in the past a history of reflux disease. She has uh, been worked up by her primary care doctor and has a barium swallow uh, that uh, shows a type 3 parasophageal hiatal hernia uh, with a slightly dilated and patchless esophagus. Her uh, primary care doctor had referred her to gastroenterology, who has gotten manometry in this situation. And then manometry indicates some uh, aperistalsis of the uh, esophagus, 
with uh, increased pressure at the GE junction, and, and they've given her a diagnosis of achalasia also. Tell me, how would you work this patient up, and, uh, and what would you do? Okay, so I think that a very thorough history is important with these patients, talking about when the symptoms started related to dysphagia, weight loss, regurgitation, um, and chest pain over the years, making sure that they've not had any previous treatments, even dilations that they um, otherwise might have passed off in their history, and then any symptoms related to the parasophageal hernia, so shortness of breath, uh, any history of anemia, etc., and uh, also a physical exam at that. So she's had a history of anemia, um, uh, the dysphagia, as we discussed. Uh, when she had her recent endoscopy uh, performed by gastroenterology, they did do a dilation. Uh, it didn't really provide a significant benefit. Um, no other major associated symptoms, uh, no significant shortness of breath. On physical exam, it's somewhat unremarkable. Um, she is, uh, again, normal age and um, appearance and, and no uh, distress. Okay. So um, in this case, uh, I would make sure to look at any of the endoscopic images, uh, any of the manometry personally, and if I couldn't obtain those, then obtain those two studies. And really from the manometry, I want to look and, and make sure if she's meeting criteria from the Chicago classification for achalasia, or if this is just some disordered peristalsis or ineffective esophageal motility. So do we have any insight on that? It appears to be consistent with ineffective esophageal motility. Um, but again, her, her referring gastroenterologist felt that this was likely achalasia based on this, plus at least the description of the barium swallow. So in, in my practice, uh, I would sit down and counsel the patient. I would present uh, her uh, to a multidisciplinary board with our gastroenterology colleagues and discuss that in her case, she seems to have symptoms that are very indicative of parasophageal hernia and uh, a common uh, presentation of parasophageal hernia. Um, and so uh, I believe that treating her as such um, de novo is um, a reasonable approach. And so I will counsel her that I would take her to the operating room and perform a standard parasophageal hernia repair. Um, one thing that is different is if there's IEM or dysphagia coming in, I definitely only perform a partial fund application and uh, I would offer her that. What approach would you offer her for that repair? Uh, we would do that uh, transabdominally, laparoscopically. Okay. Uh, let's say you, you perform a, a, trans, a laparoscopic uh, repair of this, and a week or two later, she shows up in your clinic and she's having dysphagia. How would you address that? I would uh, do a full history and ask her what she's been eating, how specifically it's been going down, the, the type of dysphagia that she's had, and any other associated symptoms. Then I might uh, consider getting a barium esophagram to start as well. So she feels that food is sticking uh, um, she's on a soft food diet, um, which she started a few days after being discharged from the hospital. Um, and she feels that most foods are sticking in her mid chest. Uh, she is getting things down, but um, feels that this is different than it was prior to surgery. Okay. And I think that's a, a key point. So, you know, some swelling related to the wrap, even though we uh, did just a partial wrap, can be expected. I think if there's delayed transit, but it does go through on the barium esophagram that I would obtain, then I would try and ride this out. Um, make sure she can keep herself uh, adequately hydrated and have some nutrition through protein shakes, etc. But give her several weeks uh, for the swelling to subside and see how she does. 
No, I think that's reasonable. I, I think when you look at the data for even a, a routine laparoscopic Nissen fundoplication, 30 to 40% of patients can have dysphagia after the operation, and sometimes that can last up to three months. And so I, I think uh, you have to be careful about rushing to intervene uh, to either do a redo operation or even to do a dilation is oftentimes unnecessary. And so if a person is able to tolerate uh, at least soft foods or liquids and, and maintain nutrition, I would give it a few weeks. Um, one other thing I would highlight, which I think you did very well on here, is that it is not uncommon for someone to have an achalasia type appearance when you have a paraesophageal hernia that is pressing on the esophagus and on the distal esophagus. And so this sometimes can be very confusing for the referring doctors in terms of understanding what the pathology is. And so I think the first step always really is repairing the paraesophageal hernia. Um, doing that and doing a partial fund application still leaves options in the future for either a myotomy or potentially a poem uh, if there is true achalasia. But I think it is fairly rare to have both achalasia and a paraesophageal hernia concurrently. Right. What I'll also say is, I know you and I have talked about this before, I think this is a scenario, um, both this and really more importantly, after folks have already had achalasia interventions, where uh, intraoperative impedance planimetry or endoflip can sometimes be useful. Because I think the literature for endoflip and achalasia is good enough now where it is a reasonable diagnostic tool. And so if you were to give, uh, bring in a patient, take down um, the hernia, and they still have signs that their lower esophageal sphincter is not at all relaxing on endoflip, then you might feel compelled to have an intervention like a myotomy as compared to not. Again, I don't think there's the data to support that necessarily yet, but I think we're pretty close to it. I don't know what you, you think. I, well. I think that's a great point. I, I think um, for not all practices, I think utilize endoflip yet. Uh, we have done that routinely for our achalasia operations, whether it be POEM or Heller myotomies now for the last few years. Um, but I've also used it for redo um, uh, foregut operations where there is a component of dysphagia uh, or lack of clarity about uh, a wrap being either too tight or the crura being um, wrapped too tight. Um, and so I think uh, being able to use endoflip and to interpret that on the table is an impo important component and a growing importance in our field, uh, especially for these more challenging foregut cases. Great. So let's cover one more uh, challenging case that we see uh, not infrequently in our practice. So you have Mr. Johnson is a 55 year old gentleman uh, who is uh, had dysphagia for uh, approximately 18 months. He has uh, been worked up by his primary care doctor and has a barium swallow that was performed a few weeks ago that shows a, a very dilated esophagus with narrowing at the uh, GE junction. Uh, the esophagus itself appears to be uh, dilated actually to five to six centimeters in size and, and seems to be fairly tortuous in shape. How would you approach him and what would your questions and discussion be for him? Right, so starting with the history, um, anyone with treated achalasia really, really want to nail down the chronicity of the symptoms and then previous treatments um, and uh, then get a sense of what their nutrition status has been like uh, recently um, and then uh, perform a physical exam. So this person has lost uh, 40 pounds in the last three months uh, and has been vomiting on a, a daily basis. Uh, they were admitted three months ago with an aspiration pneumonia uh, and were hospitalized for four or five days. Since that time, they've been on uh, almost completely a liquid diet. 
uh, taking three to four Ensure shakes. They have continued to lose weight uh, throughout this process as described. On physical exam, he appears to be normal uh, weight for his age. He, he was heavier, he stated, when all of this started. Okay, and you mentioned we have um, a barium esophagram. Um, do we also have any manometry or a recent endoscopy? Uh, there has not been uh, manometry. Uh, that, that has been attempted, but due to the tortuosity of the esophagus, they were not able to place a catheter. Uh, he did have an uh, esophagoscopy performed, uh, an uh, esophageal gastroscopy uh, that did show a, a significantly dilated uh, esophagus. Uh, with a number of uh, circuitous turns. The GE junction was visualized and um, able to be gotten through after a significant amount of effort. Uh, the stomach itself appeared to be normal uh, with no concerns. Okay, so I would discuss with a patient that um, I believe after this, uh, all of his long-standing achalasia, he has what's known as end-stage achalasia. And um, part of that is uh, a physiologic term that's used when previous treatments have failed to palliate the lower esophageal sphincter and the current anatomy does not allow patient to maintain their nutrition and hydration appropriately. And so um, in my hands, a treatment for that, if I believe the LES is fully palliated, um, would be an esophagectomy. Um, because of that, I, I would try and do a further workup. Um, one thing I would get is a CT abdomen, pelvis, and chest. Just want to make sure we're not missing a large hernia or something that would alter the anatomy um, uh, of his swallowing and then check out the foregut anatomy as well. And then I would uh, check some labs, CBC, CMP, um, try and get a sense of his nutrition because this being such a big operation, I want to see in my mind if I can get his nutrition better before it. So let's say you check his nutrition and his uh, albumin is 3.2. Uh, his prealbumin transferrin levels are also low. Um, how would you address that? I, I think it's reasonable, someone in this case, to try and give them a course of nasoenteric feeding to try and uh, prehabilitate them, um, get them stronger, a course of, say, four to six weeks. Again, I don't think it's unreasonable to do as someone with an esophageal neoplasm, for example, uh, before a major operation, I would see if they're interested in doing that. I think practically speaking, that's not always the course, but I would have that discussion. No, I think that's a, a, a very important. Um, I agree with that. I, I think in these tough scenarios, there, there's two key questions you have to think about. The first is whether or not this person may benefit from a myotomy, if we think that this is still achalasia, even in the absence of manometry data to support that. Um, once you have a quote-unquote sigmoid esophagus or where you have a significant tortuosity or even a right angle of the esophagus before it empties into the GE junction, no matter uh, what you do to the GE junction, someone will still have a sink trap-like effect in terms of food sitting in the esophagus. And it's very hard to straighten out the esophagus and, and pull that into the, uh, uh, into the abdomen uh, during an operation. So I, I think that's one key aspect is understanding that in this situation, a uh, heller myotomy or a poem are not going to give the patient the benefit. The second question here is also, does this patient need to have an esophagectomy or can they be managed non-operatively, just given the risks associated with an esophagectomy? I think in this situation, this patient has had an aspiration pneumonia, they are losing weight, they're unable to eat, and they're regurgitating regularly. I think this person does need to have something done. You may encounter patients with this exact same clinical scenario in barium swallow, but who are maintaining their weight, not having aspiration pneumonia, but they do have dysphagia and occasional regurgitation. Someone like that may be someone that you choose to watch 
um, and work with them on diet modification as opposed to pulling the trigger for an esophagectomy. Great. So one thing I, I also wanted to ask you about is um, patients who come in, uh, maybe not in the end stage, but after they're previously treated, um, how do you differentiate what you think has gone on with previously treated achalasia um, patients in all, all across the spectrum from a recent treatment to years ago? So, you know, this is a this is a tough situation. And again, even though we know we can palliate the GE junction, we know we're not uh, fixing someone's peristalsis or the ability for the esophagus to push food down. Um, so there, I think having a barium swallow and, and starting a little bit fresh in terms of reevaluating what things look like um, is helpful. Um, sometimes we've redone manometry in this situation. Um, uh, I think with manometry that shows a lack of relaxation of the GE junction, even with a prior history of a myotomy, um, whether it's been done elsewhere or even done by myself, sometimes we have taken these patients back for a redo heller. Sometimes you can actually take down the door fundoplication and, and do a redo myotomy on the lateral side of the esophagus. Another option in our practice with my partners who perform POEM is to do a POEM in this patient. Uh, who has uh, significant recurrent dysphagia. These may or may not work um, all the time, depending on what the causes are, but they're definitely less morbid than an esophagectomy. So that is sometimes our first step with some of these more uh, challenging cases. Great. Uh, thank you so much for your time this afternoon, Dr. Reddy. I think we've appreciated your insights, and uh, thank you all for listening. Thank you.